Please open your Bibles, if you would, to book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans, chapter 9. For the last several weeks now, we have been making our way through this passage of Holy Scripture, and we find ourselves now at the end of a rather extended section that goes all the way from verse 14 down through verse 29 of this chapter. And we've entitled this section, Children of the Promise. This will be part five. And we have broken it down into four main points. Essentially, God is on trial here, and his character is being questioned by some, and so we have seen that to God's defense, the apostle stands up and articulates most clearly the mercy of God in extending compassion to whom he will be compassionate, the providence of God directing every human life to the end that he has desired, the patience of God enduring those who in their state of fallenness continue to rebel and reject him, and then finally the love of God seen as we did last week in the restoration of a relationship and the vivid depiction of that in the life of Hosea and Gomer, and then today in a righteous remnant, a promise that God made that there would always be some who remain even after his justice has been fully satisfied. For many years, James Montgomery Boyce, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, faithfully proclaimed God's word. And about 40 years ago, he wrote a very interesting book on the doctrine of eschatology called The Last and Future World. And in that book, he tells a story that illustrates the theme that's going to run through the sermon today. One day, the king of Prussia, Frederick the Great, asked his military chaplain a question about the Bible. And the king was essentially in doubt as to whether or not the Bible was actually true. He had become somewhat influenced by the secular philosopher Voltaire at the time, and he was now coming to his chaplain to get affirmation about the authority and the sufficiency and the inspiration of Scripture. He wanted an answer, but he wanted it to be brief and to the point. Like most busy kings, he didn't have time to read these great long tomes that were meant to defend the Bible. He would like something that was simple, something that was clear, something that was direct. He didn't really want to have a long conversation. He just wanted a compelling answer. And so he turns to his chaplain, and the chaplain, in fact, said that he could prove the inspiration of Scripture in just one word. Frederick was amazed, and he inquired as to what this magic word happened to be. And the chaplain answered him, Israel, your majesty. And as the story goes, the great king fell silent. Paul defends the justice and the holiness of God by expounding for us the reality of a remnant. And that remnant in the Bible is the remnant of righteous Israel and the Gentiles who were grafted into that group. The remnant throughout all of Holy Scripture, throughout all of redemptive history, from the very beginning until the very end, from creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration is the promise that God in his justice would not let the guilty go unpunished, but that he would, in fact, punish even an innocent one so that the guilty could go free, having their penalty paid. That small group that whom, whom he has chosen instead of electing love upon are called the remnant. And that is what Paul wants to remind us of this morning. 
he's already defending God in terms of his holiness and his justice and his goodness and his love by reminding us of his kind mercy. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. Then his divine providence, which we saw in verses 19 through 21. Then his gracious patience, which we saw in 22 to 24. And if I were to summarize these for you, it would be something along these lines. God and his sovereignty is the only being in the universe with genuinely free will. Man, however, is born, and he is born spiritually dead. He is hostile towards God. He is an enemy of God. He is not neutral. He is not merely subject to the persuasion of sin and therefore becoming a sinner. No, he is born a sinner. He is born craving sin, loving sin, doing sin, in sin, about sin, and sin itself. And there is not a single shred of his personality that is not inclined completely towards sin. It loves sin. It feeds off of sin the way that mushrooms feed off manure. It loves it. And here's the thing. In the midst of that condition, God says it's his mercy that is poured out upon those very sinners, calling them to faith and belief in the one sacrifice who is able to impute his holiness and his righteousness to them and take their sin on himself and pay the price completely. It's by his mercy alone and not because of any cooperation on their part, we might add, that the Father sends the Son to pay the full penalty for sin and give new life to these vessels of mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the vessels of mercy we saw, it's also these vessels of wrath, the ones who are left in their hard-heartedness. And God shows patience towards them. In fact, he allows them to receive the common grace of his blessing until their rebellion has had its full effect. And they are judged righteously for their rebellion against a holy God. So his mercy, his providence, and his patience are put on display. But one last question really remains. Who is included among these vessels of mercy? And what's so astonishing to the reader of the New Testament, especially in the time that Paul writes this to the Romans, is that it includes not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And that's important because that means it includes people like us. Even the offspring of Esau, the ones whom... God identified earlier in the chapter as being unchosen, the ones who he hated, the one who was not elect, even among the offspring of Esau, there would come those who had faith. Even among the offspring of Edom, even among the offspring of Moab, the offspring of Ammon, the offspring of all of the wicked nations around the world, God says that from every tribe and people and tongue, there would be some who he would choose to have their hearts turned to him in repentance and faith. And that was an astonishing reality for the first century Jews and Gentiles. Because up until then, the idea was that God's covenant was with the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone. That if you wanted to have any hope of salvation, you had to convert and become a Jew. And what Paul says, a man who, by the way, was as Jewish as they get. I mean, there was no one who out Jewed Paul. I mean, he was Jewish to the core. He says that to many people in the writings of the New Testament. You can't be more Jewish than me, he says, and yet he was the one who God called, ironically, to be a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, to say you don't have to convert to Judaism. You simply have to believe 
in the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, people like us, the offspring of Esau, those who were not his people, that are called his people, as we saw last week in the study of Hosea, the ones who are not originally his offspring are the ones who had also become the recipients of the promise. This, we said, is his redeeming love. His mercy, his providence, his patience, and his love. Love seen in a restored relationship. We saw that in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 9. Let me remind you of it. He says, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That's a picture of the restoration. The restoration of the Jews who had been cast off and divorced, as it were, brought back. Those who had been called not my people, called my people. But here Paul extends it way beyond just the Jewish nation, but he says it applies now to the Gentiles as well. You too will be called my people. What an amazing promise. You see, Romans 9, as we've said before, is actually a love story. Romans 9 is not just an account of God's sovereignty and salvation. It is actually more than that. It's the story of God's justice and sovereignty and salvation nestled within an ongoing testimony of his absolutely unwavering love. And the love that he extends to the people through apostles like Paul who write this chapter not from a vantage point of being superior and looking down with condemnation upon those who reject the message, but from the vantage point of one who says, I would give up my own salvation if I could to see the people come to Christ. Absolute heartbreak as every word of this chapter is written. A love that infuses every verse, a compassion that colors the entire chapter. And in so doing, accurately reflects for us, the reader today, the dual reality of God's holiness and his love. You see, Hosea is the Old Testament preview, this fascinating real-life account of the prophet, the prostitute, and the picture of Christ's love for his bride. And though Jesus, during his incarnation here on earth and his earthly ministry, never married, yet he was engaged, as it were, to the spiritual bride, to the church, made up of all of the faithful who had come from both the line of Jacob and Esau. Now, that's the restored relationship that we're promised. But today, let's wrap up this section of the chapter with the last three verses, the second half of this fourth point, and that is God's love in a righteous remnant. His love in a righteous remnant. This is the word of the Lord, verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What Paul does here in this section of Romans 9 is he reaches back into the Old Testament to provide the 
Old covenant proof of a new covenant reality. It's the old covenant proof of a new covenant reality. Why is that important? Let me give you one particular reason. Because the Bible is one book. We talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we're not careful, we would almost suggest that God had two different books, two different plans, two different audiences, two different outcomes, and two different ways of salvation. Uh, We can draw this artificial line of discontinuity between what he did in the Old Testament and what he does in the New Testament. And this is seen in a most profound and I think unfortunate way in which people sometimes perceive God as a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of mercy in the New. A God of anger in the Old Testament, but a God of kindness in the New Testament. I mean, the original God in the Old Testament, he's the one that would actually judge sin and put people to death. The God of the New Testament is a kinder, gentler version of God. I mean, in the Old Testament, you've got God showing up in mysterious ways like pillars of fire and the New Testament in the tender-hearted work of Jesus. Here's why it's unfortunate that that conclusion is drawn. Because there is only and ever has been and ever will be one story that runs through the entire scriptures. There is no artificial separation there. Because everything foretold in the Old Testament of Christ was fulfilled in his ministry or will be fulfilled at his second coming. The whole story, as we've said many times before, is a biblical theology. It is a theology that runs all the way through the Bible. That is why we cannot pick up one section of Scripture, study it, and expect to know it fully without seeing its relationship to everything else. It would just be like picking up any other book, like a novel that you enjoy, reading one page and thinking, therefore, you have understood the entire book. This is why it's important for this morning. Because I need you to understand that when he talks about the remnant, he is talking about a remnant of Israel but that that Israel is more than just an ethnic Israel. That Israel is a spiritual Israel. And if you are a Christian today, God says that you are part of the spiritual Israel, the true Israel. That the very same covenant promises that were extended to a nation thousands of years ago will be fleshed out for you as well as a believer. And there will not be some eternal separation, two ways of salvation, two different peoples of God. There will always be because there has always been one people of God. Now, let's understand that in the context of his quotation of Isaiah. Why is that so important? Paul is not quoting Hosea and Isaiah because he's concerned that he doesn't bear enough authority on his own. You know, some people, when they make a difficult statement, they want to reach back and they want to quote somebody because they're a little bit concerned that if they were to say it on their own, no one would take them seriously. Now, this is definitely what happens for younger preachers. I mean, they'll say something controversial, and then the first thing they'll do is they'll quote a commentator that they know the people in the congregation like to read. Or they'll quote a famous pastor or a famous podcaster these days, and they'll say, well, this is what he said, and so I'll quote him because he bears the weight that I don't have yet as a preacher. Believe me, Paul is not concerned that he doesn't have the credentials to speak on his own. Paul's an apostle. Paul's an authority. Paul understood all of the Jewish context as well as being used by God to write the modern context of the inspired scriptures. So why does he quote Hosea and Isaiah? He doesn't do it for lack of confidence. He does it because he even wants his readers in Rome to understand that this has been God's plan from the beginning. 
You see, he's connecting the dots for them. So let's make that our mindset as we look at the quotes so we understand them correctly. And these are quotations from the book of Isaiah, the section I read to you just a moment ago. Perhaps a good verse, by the way, to connect Hosea to Isaiah would be this. In Isaiah 54, 5, he says, For your maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Oh my, what a wonderful promise that is. (laughs) Wait a second. Let me understand this correctly. Are you trying to tell me that the very maker of the universe, the one who spoke it into existence, the one who created all things, the one who put into play all of redemptive history is also my husband? Now, we don't think that way very often of God, do we? We don't think of God so much as a husband. I mean, if you're like me, I like to think of God as a king. God is the king. There's something noble and honorable about serving the king. I want to bow to the king. I want to be in service of the king. I want to go off into war for the king. Having a king, you know, that's, that's manly. I like the king. Some of you think, oh, he's a shepherd. I like to be led. I like to be um, cared for and watched over. He's, he's a shepherd. But, but how many of us think of God as a husband? It's hard, especially for us men, right? Like, we don't often think, well, I need a husband. But that's how God presents himself presents himself to us, the church, as being that husband. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. He is the one who will provide all of this love that a human husband is going to do his very best by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be a foreshadowing of, but in Christ it is perfect and it is complete. He says, I'll be a husband to them. So with that as our picture, not only the maker, but also the husband, not only the Lord, but also the servant, not only the Holy One, but also the lover, the intense, personal, intimate lover of our souls. He says the following in Isaiah. And to understand Isaiah, to understand the quotes, we have to understand the book. The book of Isaiah is broken down into two major sections. Now, this is going to be a little bit of history for you like we did with Hosea, except I won't go through the whole book of Isaiah because that's 66 chapters. And if you think it was long last week, it would be super long this week. But let me give you the big picture. Isaiah is broken down into two sections. Chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Now that is a little bit easy to remember because there are 39 books in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and there are 27 books in the New. But these two sections are broken down that way. And the first half of it, generally speaking, is about judgment. And the second half of it, generally speaking, is about God's comforting promises. And the vast majority of the book is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of Isaiah. You see, Isaiah served as a messenger of God to the southern tribes, to Judah and to Benjamin. And he was warning them about the coming Babylonian captivity But he was writing this around 740 to 700 B.C., which means that he had been dead for decades before all of these prophecies were fulfilled. But nevertheless, he is sent there by God to warn the people of what's to come. And so within all of these prophecies that he gives, 
At key points along the way, there are very important narratives. For example, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, you'll remember, is the vision that Isaiah has of the glory of God filling the temple. And I love the way that Isaiah 6 begins because it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah had died basically in shame, covered in leprosy because of his desire to exert authority beyond what God had given him. And in the year that he died, during a time when there was turmoil, when there was a leadership vacuum, when everybody wondered who was in charge, not unlike it is today in many parts of the world, who's in charge? Who's running this place? The king is dead. The successor has not been named. The entire political establishment seems to be impotent. Isaiah says, in that year, I saw a vision of God high and lifted up on his throne. Isn't it a wonderful practical application for us today that no matter what is going on in our country or any other, the one incumbent ruler of the universe has never been dethroned, has never for one moment not been in charge, and even to this very moment reigns and rules from heaven in glory doing whatever he wants. Isn't that comforting? We were surrounded by nations led by complete morons that the God of the universe says, I know, and for my own reasons, I raised them up, and for my own reasons, I'm going to tear them down. But don't you think for one moment that anyone is going to take me off the throne? Isn't it wonderful to know that God will never be recalled? Whenever you're perplexed about what's going on in your own city, in your own state, in your own nation, or in this globe, just please, for a moment, pull back from the endless barrage of media and remind yourself of Isaiah 6. Can I provide the antidote right now? It is never going to be political on a human level anyway. It doesn't matter who's so-called in charge, because there's only ever been one. Read Isaiah 6. Get a proper perspective of the holiness of God and his rule and his reign. That's an important narrative. Another important narrative comes in chapter 7 through 9. It shows this amazing weakness on the part of Ahaz. You see, Ahaz is fearful because Syria and the northern tribes of his own people, of the Jews, are going to go to war against him or they're threatening that. And Isaiah says, don't you for a moment worry because God's in charge. And this king, in his lack of faith, goes out there and tries to make an alliance with Assyria. And here's the problem. When you make an alliance with the world, they're always going to take way more than they say they will take. Once you allow them to get in, believe me, they will find a way to take over. And this is exactly what happened. He actually opens up the door for Assyria, the sworn enemies of God's people to come in and to align with him and to protect him instead of trusting in God to protect him. Isaiah 11 provides this amazing promise of the Messiah, that branch that is going to come up out and is going to be holy and pure and perfect. And then Isaiah 36 to 39 reveals the faith and the foolishness and the indifference of King Hezekiah. Here's a man who does something good in the beginning, and he doesn't allow the threat of the nations around him to make him make alliances with Egypt or Assyria or anyone else for that matter. He isn't allowing himself to fall for that. He trusts in God, and that is good. However, in his pride and in his arrogance, when a group from Babylon comes down, 
he shows them all the riches of Judah and Jerusalem. And Isaiah has to come to him and say, that was really stupid because all the stuff that you showed, that emissary in your pride and your arrogance, it's all going to be stolen now. It's all going to be taken away. Hezekiah is also the king who was told that he was going to die. And when he turned and begged the Lord to rescue him, God says, I will. I'll give you 15 more years. However, he is also the king at the end when God reveals all of the destruction that would come upon his people because of his rash decision to show off his treasure was the one who shrugged with indifference and said, oh, well, at least I'll be fine until I die. It is these narratives laced within the prophecies of Isaiah that are the context for everything that Paul is saying here when he talks about the remnant. Because the most important glimmers of hope in the book revolve around the promise that God will not leave his people devastated, but he's going to preserve a remnant. He's going to preserve a remnant. I'm going to bring my wrath upon you for your constant idolatry and immorality and indifference and pride, but I'm not going to wipe you out completely. I'm going to leave some. Let's understand the context of these quotes. Go back in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And I want you to open to Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 20 through 27. That's the context of the first quote. Now, please bear with me. I know this is a little bit complicated, but I just need you to understand how this is fitting together. So, in Romans 9, Paul quotes Isaiah. And he is quoting in... Romans 9, verses 27 and 28 from Isaiah 10. Really, verses 22 and 23. But I want you to read and understand the context of Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah, one of three of the major prophets. We call them major prophets, not because they're more important, but because it was a longer book. Isaiah... Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations, and Ezekiel. These, often along with Daniel, are called the major prophets. And so he is writing this very long book, recording the promises of God towards his people. And he looks ahead, as he often does, to the very end. Remember, the prophecies, as well as the books of the Bible themselves, are not written chronologically. So here he is giving a picture of the end. Please follow along as I read Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 20. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob. Pause there for a moment. Israel refers to the northern tribes. Judah, Jerusalem, the southern. It's a prophecy for all of Israel. So Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer... Lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the Almighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Oh, please note that. Destruction is decreed. Why? Because God is an angry, capricious God? No, because God is a righteous, holy, and just God, and therefore, in his judgment, what you have is the overflowing torrent of the waters of righteousness in everything that he does. For the Lord God, 
written in your English translation, this would be Yahweh with us of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, one of his many times of intervening for his people. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulders, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Do you know what it means that the yoke will be broken because of the fat? Me neither. <laughs> but it's really interesting to see how creative some commentators are. We, we don't know what that, evidently we will be, it was so well fed that the fatness of our necks will just break the yokes of bondage upon us. I don't know. But either way, that fat is going to do some serious work. And it is going to break free the bondage of this oppressive overlord that's over them, be it Assyria or Egypt or Babylon or any other of the world powers that seem so strong. But it's only going to be for that remnant, the one who are left. That is the context in which he quotes Isaiah 10, 22 and 23 in Romans 9, 27 and 28. Let's look at the second quotation. It comes in Romans 29, uh, Romans 29, Romans 9, 29, in the next verse there, and that comes from Isaiah 1. So look back over Isaiah 1. Again, we just want some context here. We want to pull out this quote, because Paul would have quoted it in a context. The people knew the context. Isaiah opens up his prophecy like this, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that's the southern tribe, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He prophesied for about 40 years into the reign of probably Manasseh, who was the wicked king, who by tradition and in the record of Hebrews likely took Isaiah, stuffed him into an empty tree log and cut him in half with a saw didn't end well for prophets in those days. But he ministered to the people of God throughout the reign of these many kings while the one king remained on the throne. And we, we could read on and on. The problem when I start to give a context like this is you start to realize page after page after page is all the same prophecy. So let me just give you some of the, of the context here without going too far. Look over at verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 1. Now, this is what Isaiah says coming out the gate. He doesn't warm the people up. He doesn't give them like the good news first and then the bad news. Like Isaiah did not read how to win friends and influence people. I mean, he just, boom, comes out with it. No warm up, no nothing. It's just like, here's the judgment of God. He just swings a hammer right from verse, well, two and following. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken, children I have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. There is no discernment in Israel. The whole Jewish nation 
in the north and the south had less awareness of God than an ox would of its owner or a donkey of its master. He says, that's how far you've gone from me. And therefore, looking ahead, remember, during a time of opulence, during a time of success, during a time when the economy was rocking, during a time when everybody had money, when everything seemed to be going so well, Isaiah says, I got a vision of what it's going to be like around here. And he says this, beginning in verse 7, your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land, it is desolate, it is overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And then here he is, the quote from Romans, that he quotes in Romans, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, God says to his people Israel, you are like a shack, a temporary structure that was put up in the middle of the field during harvest time. That's what you would do because you got up very early in the morning and you stayed there until the sun went down. And so in order to get the most out of your day, in order to get the most out of your laborers, you would go and you would set up this temporary shack. It would be like setting up a tent in the middle of the field or the orchard while you were harvesting. And as everybody knows, these shacks, these tents, are, are absolutely useless in trying to provide anything but the most rudimentary of shelter. Anything could blow them over. Anything could invade them. Anything could run them down. And he says, you as a nation have become nothing more than a little shack in a cucumber field. You think you're so powerful. You think you're so strong. Your military is so great. Your economy is unstoppable. Your people are all educated. You think everything is wonderful and everything is absolutely on the verge of collapse. That's how he describes them. And so when Paul reaches back and he grabs a hold of this prophecy, he's reminding the Roman believers that in the face of absolute devastation, God is faithful to preserve his elect. He is faithful to preserve his remnant. He will not allow his own promises to go unfulfilled because he will not allow his own glory to be tarnished. He won't allow his promises to go unfulfilled because he won't let his justice be maligned. He won't allow his promises to go unfulfilled because God cares too much about God to allow that to happen. Isn't that an awesome promise? I'm, I'm so grateful that God cares so much about God that he won't allow his promises to go unfulfilled versus God thinks so much of me that he won't allow his promises to go unfulfilled. Isn't it wonderful that God's promises are not conditional? Meaning if I hold up my end of the bargain, he'll hold up his. Isn't it wonderful that he does not treat me as if I am an employee in some sort of contract relationship, but because I am a son in a family, in a covenant relationship. His love for me never fails. His love for his chosen ones never fails. And so, in the context of this chapter of love, we can go back to Romans 9. In the context of describing what God has done in choosing some, in the context of describing his provision for them, and in his ultimate fulfillment of the promise of their salvation, he goes back to say this is not a new concept. It was pictured for us in Hosea and Gomer. It was promised in Isaiah, the Old Testament book quoted more often than any other by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. And therefore, it is the very essence of God's nature, and he wants us to know it. 
What do we take away from this? We take away from this that none will be able to accuse God of injustice. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He will not allow his holiness to be corrupted. And that's very significant because, remember, Paul is called here to the Gentiles. He says, oh yes, God will fulfill all of his righteous judgments. But he will also reach out his hand of mercy to you. You might say, well, isn't that covenant only with Israel? The answer is yes. But as we'll come to see in the following chapters of Romans, in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, we will see that because of their rebellion, God has temporarily set them aside that he might open up the door for others to come in and partake of those blessings. They are forsaken for now. They are, many of them, living in the delusion that somehow protection remains. There are some who believe that Israel has some special place today in God's eyes. Apart from the fact that they are the people of God that will be preserved as a remnant, there is no promise of protection that extends beyond that. There are some who arrogantly assume that because they are of Jewish descent, they are uniquely protected. Might I remind you that protection is very different than preservation. Oh, God will preserve, even if he chooses not to protect. You see, there's an example in the Old Testament scriptures in 2 Kings chapter 11, where a wicked woman comes to power in Israel and actually chases down all the descendants of David and wipes them out down to one single baby that remained. His name was Joash. And Joash was rescued by somebody in the household and kept in the temple, protected in secret for seven years so that he could be reestablished one day when they overthrew this wicked woman and made little Joash king. The line of David got down to one individual, one single person. If you don't think that God will allow his promise to go to the point where it seems like it's not going to be fulfilled, you are wrong. Sometimes he does that, I think, to show how in control he is. He says, oh, look, I've made a promise to the line of David, and by the way, I'm going to allow every single other person connected to David to be put to the sword, save one, and I will protect that little baby and I will make sure that that child gets onto the throne and that the line continues. Preservation is not the same as protection. You see, at this point, it is wide open. Jew and Gentile alike both come to God on an equal footing. There is no favoritism with God at all. Therefore, one can proclaim a gospel like that to everybody without being discriminatory as to who the audience is. Now, Paul, the great defender of the character of God, steps forward in this chapter. He is determined to prove the holiness and the love of God. This is not to prove God is innocent because God doesn't need his help. It is to prove that his accusers are blasphemers. Now, we might add here that his accusers are many. They are not just the agnostic. They are, in fact, the very men who have shaped human history On the side of God's accuser stand several witnesses, but we can be thankful that for every Pelagius, God raises up an Augustine. For every Eck and Erasmus, a Luther. For every Arminius, a faithful band of true reformers. There has been, and we pray always will be, a faithful witness ready to state the facts about God, his character, and his gospel. Amen? May that always be the case. Truth is often obscured by the pressure that comes from debate. But as much as it is obscured by that, it is also produced through that. Because it is in that pressure, it is in that great cost that the real truth emerges. 
Men have given their lives for these truths and even lost their lives at the hands of other men who claim to love and serve the same God. But that should be expected. Some will always have to fall in order that this truth be revealed. There's a price to be paid. As the famous missionary Samuel Zwemer rightly put it, war always means blood and treasure. Remember, when God reveals himself, it's of infinite consequence. He reveals himself in Isaiah 6 as being the God who is holy. He reveals himself in Isaiah 42 as the God who is love. And I think those two defining characteristics tend to be what we as believers think. I mean, consider this. If you were to ask anybody to define God with one word, what would it be? I would submit to you this morning that if I were to take that poll in this audience, uh, most of the answers would fall along one of two lines. The first would be that God is holy. I mean, God is holy. These are the holy God people, the wrath of God people. They love God's holiness. They love to read the imprecatory Psalms where God is smashing people's teeth. They love to read about how God and his infinite holiness will finally wipe out all of those reprobates. They love to preach these powerful doctrines of God's sovereignty. They have a little picture of John Calvin on their nightstand. Now, before you laugh about the holy God people, there's also another group. They're the love God people. And over here, we've got the God is love people. And all that really matters is God is love, 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 love. I mean, they love God and God loves them and loves everywhere. And there's nothing better than singing 17 stanzas of good, good father. Now look, is God holy or is God love? Yes. How do you know that? I'll tell you how I know that. I know that because holiness and love intersect. The only intersectionality worth talking about is that. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Holiness and love intersect. What does it mean? What does it look like when holiness and love intersect? You know what it looks like? It looks like Romans 9. It looks like everything that we have been talking about in this amazing chapter. It meets in Romans 9. It meets in redemption. It meets in the remnant. Beloved, it meets on the cross where absolute holiness and justice is poured out and where absolute love and mercy are displayed. Where God sees fit to send his only son to receive upon himself the eternal hells of every person who would ever believe in order that he might maintain his righteous standard of punishing sin so that he could say without any risk to his character that all who repent, all who confess their sins receive from him forgiveness and that he is both faithful and just to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. That's the only way it's possible. So... He is just, and he is love. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20 are given in the context of yet another remnant, a little preview, if you will, of what, what is to come at the very end. The context of 1 Peter chapter 3, and you may turn there if you wish, is the flood. If there was ever an example of a righteous remnant, it would have been Noah. 
of the entire world population, God saw fit to rescue eight. And he put them into an ark, immersed them into an ark. It's the Greek word we get baptized from. Put them into the ark. Why? So that his judgment could rain down and yet they would be preserved. So that his judgment could rain down. You say, well, wait a minute. Couldn't he have just told them to stand over here and I'm going to flood all of the earth except this little patch? No. Because he said, I'm going to curse the whole earth. So I have to bring judgment down. However, I'm going to provide a way for you to survive. I'm going to give you this ark, this shelter, and you're going to be baptized into it, immersed into it. And it in turn will be immersed into my wrath. But in the end, my wrath will be over. My judgment will be satisfied. My holiness upheld. And at the same time, you will come out from that a people protected and preserved. Now notice how Peter ties this together with the idea of a remnant and everything we just talked about this morning. Beginning here, in chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water or judgment. Baptism, immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not a removal of dirt from the body. Not, not immersing somebody into water like at a physical baptism in a church. But the idea of being immersed into that protection but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Oh, he rules and he reigns and he has come that he might be that ark into which sinners flee that all of the judgment of God be poured out upon him that his righteousness be granted to them. And he has now ascended back up to the right hand of God, to that place of power where all the angels, the authorities, the powers of everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth have been subject to his righteous rule, the very same one that Isaiah saw in the year King Uzziah died. And there he waits to return, to bring the judgment that a rebellious world deserves and to rescue the remnant that he has always promised will be. That, my friends, is the most incredible story. That is the theme of Romans 9. And that is where we put our comfort and where we get our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome truth. Thank you for something far beyond our capacity to fully understand. Thank you for the mystery revealed to us in your word that before the foundation of the world, you had chosen some to be awakened by the re restoration of their spiritual 
heart by the Holy Spirit, given a heart of flesh and not of stone, that that regeneration occurs, and that that is offered to Jew and Gentile alike who put their faith and trust in you. Oh God, I pray that you would give us great compassion for the lost, that we would show the very love and mercy of God made evident to us here, that we would also be faithful to proclaim your justice and your holiness, and that those two truths would come together in a loving and yet clear proclamation of the power of the gospel, and that through that and that alone, you would draw many to yourself in saving faith. Pray these things in your name. Amen.